On this week's 51%, we discuss the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. WAMC's Pat Bradley takes us to a protest at SUNY Plattsburgh. These younger women of childbearing age are being told what to do with their bodies. It's not right. And we speak with former U.S. District Judge Nancy Gertner for her analysis of the opinion. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. This week I had planned to get back into our Women in Business series, but sometimes the news has other plans. Earlier this month, Politico published a leaked draft majority opinion written by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito for Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which the court is expected to officially decide on this summer. Now the newspaper notes this is a draft opinion, the things in it could change, But in it, Alito writes that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey must be overruled. The decision, if followed through on, would effectively end federal protection for abortion rights that have been in place for almost 50 years. We've got a roundup of stories and interviews on the subject for you today. Depending on where you stand on abortion or access to the procedure, you may be thrilled or discouraged by the impending decision. Abortion rights groups are organizing protests in cities across the country, with various Bands Off Our Bodies events planned for May 14th. At SUNY Plattsburgh, a state college in New York's North Country, students, staff, and community members rallied quickly after the leak to express their concerns. We'll start there with WAMC's Pat Bradley. People gathered at the college's Amity Plaza, holding signs decrying the draft Supreme Court opinion that suggests the high court is poised to restrict abortion rights. Most attending were students, but there were also professors, staff, and members of the community upset that what they call a basic right is now at risk. Not the church, not the state! Student organizer Mary Stockman thanked everyone for coming. This decision or leakage disgusted me and scared me as a woman. And if it doesn't scare you or disgust you, it should. I mean, I got through half of the opinion, and it was like a book you had to put down and throw in the fire because it was so bad. And I am worried for this country. A criminal justice, law and justice sophomore from Buffalo, Stockman says if the Supreme Court justices validate the draft opinion, it's not just Roe v. Wade rights that are at risk. If this decision comes out, it's the opening gates for other um, Supreme Court decisions to be overturned, like Lovings v. Virginia, which has to do with interracial marriage, uh, Obergefell v. Hodgins, which has to do with gay rights. Also, Lawrence v. Texas, which also has to do with gay rights. So this is just the floodgates opening for the Supreme Court to overturn anything. I think most people just hear Roe v. Wade and they think that's it, you know. It's only going to be abortion, but it's not. Long Island political science senior Ron Ryan Ferguson is concerned about the implications for the rights of marginalized communities. While I do agree with abortion rights, I think that that's important. I also think that the decision, the draft decision as it was, expands far beyond that and what it risks. Alito discusses uh, 
the idea of all unenumerated rights coming under threat and the decision and rationale there uh, impacts privacy rights. It impacts just a whole lot of other decisions that are based off of Roe v. Wade, and that terrifies me. Education sophomore Owen Graff says no one should have the right to impose on someone else's choices. I just think, as a man, I have no business saying what someone else should be able to do with their bodies. Like, uh, I shouldn't have a say in what someone else does. So if someone wants to get a tattoo on their arm, why should I be able to say that? If someone wants to get an abortion, why should I say something against that? Looking throughout the country, if you see small-scale rallies in like small towns like over and over again, it begins to show and reflect the majority of the views of the United States population. The majority of people do support pro-choice. Sherry Dumont is a photography instructor at the college. She held a sign saying, never again, with a wire hanger attached. She believes the draft opinion has made people realize they could lose established rights. Makes me very angry, actually, that these younger women of childbearing age are being told what to do with their bodies. It's not right. And it's not their decisions to enforce their religious beliefs on me, on anyone. And I feel that that's what's happening. Art Department Administrative Assistant Kimberly Hallstone was standing next to Dumont. They want to turn the clock back, it seems, to a very ugly and scary time for women. How does somebody else get to tell anyone what to do with their body? If it was a procedure being done to a man, it wouldn't be happening. The U.S. Senate voted unanimously on Monday to provide Supreme Court justices the same level of security as members of the executive and legislative branches. It followed weekend protests at the homes of justices. The court could issue their final decision in June. I'm Pat Bradley, WAMC News. As you heard, some activists and legal experts are concerned the court's decision could not only impact abortion rights, but other matters. Our first guest today is among them. Nancy Gertner is a former federal judge who served on the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts from 1994 until her retirement from the bench in 2011. A few years earlier, in 2008, she became the second woman to receive the American Bar Association's Thurgood Marshall Award behind the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Gertner is now a senior lecturer at Harvard Law School. While she says she wasn't surprised by Alito's opinion, she was taken aback by its scope. I mean, this is a decision that not just trashes privacy protections in the Constitution, it really trashes, in my view, equal protections for women and more generally privacy protections in other areas. So the scope of the decision was what stunned me. I guess to start off, for those who don't know, like, what is the key issue being debated here? Like, what is the reasoning being offered for why the court thinks it should and can overturn Roe? There are, as I said, five justices who don't believe that the Constitution stands for anything other than that which was explicitly stated in, you know, this 18th century document um, with, you know, some 19th century updates. So that they're focused on enumerated rights in the Constitution and longstanding rights. Now, that's an extraordinary position because at the time the Constitution was drafted, women were literally the property of their husbands. Women couldn't contract. There would be no gender protections under the 17th century Constitution because women were not as 
you know, non-people as were slaves, to be sure. They were citizens, but they had very few protections and they were simply not an issue. And even after the Civil War, women were, who tried to have women's rights included in the, the amendments after the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, failed in that. So a constitutional interpretation that focuses on, on enumer, enumerated rights is bound to leave all of us out. So that was one thing. That is a stunning turnaround. And then while the draft opinion says, hey, don't worry about the right to privacy more generally, birth control, same-sex marriage, all of the complex of rights that have to do with your right to determine your family, all of those rights of intimate association, don't worry about that. This is only about abortion. If you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you. This is clearly the, has the potential for unraveling a whole skein of rights that began with a famous decision called Griswold versus Connecticut, which allowed married people to get access to contraception. What do you feel are those other rights then? Well, this all began with birth control litigation, with the notion that this is on the federal level, the notion that whether or not you use birth control, married or unmarried, ultimately applied to unmarried as well, was really up to you that the government had simply no business in decisions about whether to bear, beget, um, you know, or beget a child. That then led to a host of other decisions that said, you know, the government has no right to know what kind of sex you're, you're engaging in in your bedroom. And then from that, even for who you marry. Um, originally, the same set of rights uh, led to uh, the determination that the government can't prohibit interracial marriage. But it was all part of, and certainly same-sex marriage, but it was all part of this notion that what goes in my bedroom, all of those kinds of issues are simply not issues for the government. So that's what I'm talking about, the skein of rights which are potentially unraveled uh, by these approaches. Has something like this ever happened at the Supreme Court level before? I have never heard. There have been instances in which precedent was overturned. And the anti-choice people famously talk about Plessy versus Ferguson, which held that, that segregation was not prohibited under the Constitution, and the Dred Scott decision, which held that black people were, you know, were property. Slaves were appropriately considered property. Yeah, there were individual decisions, precedent that has have been reconsidered, but I have never heard of precedent that's reconsidered that takes away rights. The issue when we reversed Dred Scott and said, of course, African-Americans are full citizens, or when we prohibited segregation, of course desegregation is required under the Constitution. We were granting rights as the Constitution evolved. I don't know of another situation in which rights, once granted, in place for 50 years, are now undone. This is new. I know as of this taping, the Senate just voted and failed to pass legislation that would have codified abortion rights on the federal level. There's been a lot of ideas kind of batted around by Democrats and abortion rights activists over these past like several months, whether it's codifying Roe, eliminating the filibuster or flat out like expanding the court. And I guess I'm curious as to your thoughts on the legitimacy of any of those ideas as a former federal judge. Do you see any of those things ever happening or are things just kind of set as they are? Well, I was part of the I was one of the commissioners on the White House Commission on the Supreme Court, and I um, weighed in very strongly on behalf of people who, who thought that the court should be expanded. 
not because I agreed with this or that decision that happens, right, that I would disagree with some decisions of the Supreme Court. But the problem here was a combination of things. One was, in many views, including mine, the selection of at least two and possibly three of the justices uh, during the Trump administration was illegitimate. So the court was packed by Trump when um, McConnell refused to give a hearing um, for the nomination of Merrick Garland 10 months before the 2016 election. And then when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed within minutes while people were, in fact, voting um, in the 2020 election. So many of us believe that at least two and possibly three of the Supreme Court justices had been packed on this court. In addition, when you add this packing of the court to the efforts all across the country to restrict voting, to change who uh, supervises elections, um, and a Supreme Court that up until now has been allowing those kinds of restrictions on voting, voting, then you have a Supreme Court not that will change with the next election, with the next president, but a Supreme Court that is baked in place for generations to come. And that's new. That's different. And I was part of a group that argued that requires expanding the court um, and dealing with term limits, which require a constitutional amendment. So there are things that people can do. It's just they are substantial measures. Mm -hmm. But this is really, I mean, I can't say it enough that when you have five very, very, very conservative justices, they can do pretty much whatever they want to do with respect to American law. It only takes four votes to get a case considered by the court for on certiorari, um, and then they have the votes to overturn really a, a body of law that has been percolating for 50 years, not just with Roe v. Wade, but even beyond that. Um, so this is incredibly troubling. That even had me thinking about even when they did vote on the bill yesterday, like even if it was passed, would it survive if it was challenged in, in court? Well, I think it would survive. I mean, the Supreme Court, it, it, with one exception, it would survive. Let mm-hmm. me say in general, this all the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court was saying is we're going to take away federal protection for the right to choose abortion. You state legislatures and presumably you Congress can do pretty much whatever you want to do. The only exception would be if the Supreme Court says that the fetus is a human being entitled to protection um, under the U.S. Constitution, um, and it depends how that's defined, embryo, fertilized egg, you know, later in the process, if they say that the fetus is a human being, then that would constrain even the federal Congress, and it would certainly constrain the states. Um, So right now, under this decision, Congress could establish protections for the right to choose. But who knows where the next decision of this Supreme Court will go. Um, There have also been some concerns about the fact that this draft opinion was leaked. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Well, that is troubling. It's actually not not the more serious issue. The more serious issue is its content. But it's troubling and it could because it says something about how politicized this court has become, right? Somebody somewhere thought it was important that people needed to see this decision before it was formally released. Uh, what, so that there will be pressure brought to bear on justices? Whatever the rationale and whether it was from the right or the left, it's not a good thing. To some degree, inoculating the Supreme Court from political forces is part of what makes a court a court. Whoever did it, it's very troubling. And the numbers of leaks that are coming out of the court are even more substantial. There's always been leaks from the court 
you know, after a decision came out in a judge's memoirs, a, a clerk that might say something that they shouldn't, but not during the decision-making process. This is new. Lastly, I guess overall, just like what are your main takeaways from this impending decision? So there's the outcome, right? There's annihilating 50-year precedent. And 50-year precedent, by the way, that was reinforced by Republican justices and Democratic justices. It didn't matter who appointed you. Everyone had been aligned with some few exceptions. I might add, I think at least 10 or 15 states also found the right to choose under their constitutions. So you're talking about what what had been really a consensus decision that uh, the right to choose was under uh, state constitutions that broadly protected privacy. So the first thing is the outcome, which is stunning. And the implications of the outcome for me are not just, you know, constricting abortion across the country, um, at least that states that don't have state protections for abortion. But it's also what this has let loose in state legislatures about contraception limitations, limiting medical abortions. What it let loose is an incredibly scary retrograde reversal of the equality protections we've been working so hard to achieve. So uh, the outcome is stunning. And then for me as a constitutional lawyer and judge, former judge, the reasoning is mind-boggling. Nancy Gertner is a former U.S. District Court judge for the District of Massachusetts, now a senior lecturer at Harvard Law School. Judge Gertner, thanks so much for taking the time. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. While the U.S. appears poised to roll back its stance on abortion, other countries have been increasing access to the procedure. For example, Colombia became the latest Latin American country to legalize abortion this past February. Our next guest has dedicated her research to the abortion rights movements in Latin America, including Mexico, Uruguay, Chile, and Argentina. Cora Fernandez-Anderson is an assistant professor of politics at Mount Holyoke College and the author of Fighting for Abortion Rights in Latin America, Social Movements, State Allies, and Institutions. I'm originally from Argentina, so I have a special, you know, interest in in those particular um, countries and what is going on. And I would say that, you know, Latin America has been historically a region with highly restrictive abortion laws until 2012. You know, the only country that had legal abortion on demand was Cuba. And that, you know, has a very different political trajectory than the rest of the country. So it was not something that you can compare. So this has been happening um, historically due to, you know, a legacy of the colonial rules, the political role that historically the Catholic Church had, you know, both in Spain and Portugal and then like in the colonies and even after independence. But what we've seen, I would say since the 2000s approximately, is the growth of a feminist movement not in every single country, but definitely in some of them, like really at the vanguard of this push for addressing the lack of reproductive rights, you know, the lack of women's equality, you know, like bringing up the issue of violence against women, femicide, so many issues, you know, within the feminist agenda that have come up very strongly among activists, and they have been able to um, introduce these issues in the societal agenda first and then in the political agenda. 
so what we're seeing is, for example, in um, well, Mexico City, because abortion in Mexico is regulated at the state level. So, you know, that is a country definitely to consider when we're looking at what might happen in the U.S. Um, if Roe is repealed. So Mexico City was the first one in this trend to legalize abortion in 2007, but it only, you know, was in the capital city, not the rest of the state. So that's why the first country that actually legalized was Uruguay in 2012 then followed by um, Argentina in 2020, Colombia now in 2022, and then throughout the years, more Mexican states also have uh, legalized abortion. I think now there are seven states out of 32 that have legal abortion on demand. So it's we are seeing a trend, we're seeing um, a push for legalization. And I would say that the main factor behind these policy changes have been the presence and strength of um, abortion rights movement. I was going to ask, like, what kinds of different cultural and political environments are you seeing in these countries that has prompted these movements forward? Yes, what I would say is these countries have are going through a cultural shift. Again, as someone that was born in Argentina and raised in Argentina until I was 27 years old, in my, you know, youth and uh, when I was even in college in Argentina, you know, abortion was still an issue that was taboo. It was heavily stigmatized. You know, it was still happening because we know that the criminalization doesn't stop people from seeking abortions. This is something that they need to take control over their lives. But it was never mentioned or spoken um, about. So these movements that emerge around, you know, the year 2000, mostly in Uruguay, more towards 2005 in Argentina. So, you know, depending on the country, there's like different years uh, really are starting working in raising, you know, awareness. And I think they are starting to push this cultural shift. In the case of Argentina, you know, it was not only the issue of abortion, but then the issue of femicide, you know, the killing of a woman because of their gender, uh, usually committed by either partners or former partners, sometimes with sexual violence involved. And this has also, you know, together, the issue of abortion and the issue of femicide have been, you know, brought up by movements, you know, the issue of abortion by a particular campaign in Argentina, the issue of femicide has been brought by a movement, Ni Una Menos, it's literally translated to not one woman less. And both, you know, they were able to bring feminist perspectives more to the mainstream, to bring the feminist perspective of asking questions that really point to, you know, the structural conditions and not to individual cases. So, you know, just trying to understand, for example, the case of femicide, that it's not, you know, the fault of the victim, but actually, you know, <laughs> thinking about the patriarchal relations and patriarchal society that we live in, the desire of men to control women's bodies and, you know, how that results in this almost epidemic. Of, of these crimes. And then the abortion rights movement, you know, once kind of the, the movement for femicide was able to start introducing this feminist perspective, was able to link the issue of abortion also as another case of violence against women. That the fact that abortion is not allowed, that is criminalized, also, you know, implies a violence from the state because these are preventable deaths. These are, you know, preventable issues that emerge when unsafe abortion uh, happens that only with the change of the law, you are able to, you know, provide a medical procedure very uh, safely. We know, you know, like how safe abortion is when done in under proper conditions. Uh, because of the lack of access to this, you know, many women were either dying or having, you know, like deep consequences to their health. 
So how they linked those issues, I thought, was like very significant in really breaking that stigma in and starting to talk about abortion from a very different perspective, um, not as a moral issue, but you know, as a as an issue of empowering women to make decisions over their own lives, you know, to take control of your life as a positive, you know, spin. And then, you know, the movement in Argentina in particular, they drafted a bill to introduce in Congress. And politicians initially, you know, were not pretty much in involved or interested in bringing up this issue. I wouldn't say that most politicians were anti-choice. They just prefer to avoid it. But as the movement grew, you know, this uh, perception of abortion being costly electorally started changing because they're starting to see, well, there's like millions of people in the streets pushing and demanding legal abortion. So maybe it's something that we should listen to. And this is when we start seeing the change in Congress as well. So where do you see these movements going? If Roe v. Wade were overturned in the U.S., do you see it having an impact on efforts in other countries as well? Yes, I think so. Um, there's like very specific and practical ways that it will have an impact in the global south in developing countries. You know, since the 1980s, actually, there has been this Mexico City rule, like the global gag rule that was first stated by uh, Ronald Reagan in like uh, the Conference on Population and Development in 1984 that said that um, the U.S., will not finance any NGO or organization that either provides abortion or advocates for abortion reform. And ever since every Republican administration that has been in power, you know, has like implemented this rule and then every democratic administration that has been in power has, you know, removed uh, the rules. So that's a very specific uh, way that whatever was happening with abortion in the United States had a direct impact in how much these NGOs that provide a lot of reproductive health care, you know, not just abortion, like in general, you know, but in general also, and now talking more particularly about the region that I research, Latin America, you know, we know that the U.S. <laughs> has had historically a strong impact in Latin America at all levels, you know, anything that is happening, you know, has a direct impact in terms of like the discourse and the narrative and the legitimacy that, you know, particular narratives are given, you know, people in Latin America look and see what is happening in the US and, and see if it applies to them. So I can definitely see the repeal of Roe strengthening and re-energizing the anti-choice movements, which in some countries, they're quite strong. In some others, as I said, because of the growth of feminist and abortion rights movement, they have been curtailed or their power like eroded. Uh, but definitely now they have like a new almost source of legitimacy, just like they, their message will be, well, see what is happening in the US. They had, you know, legal abortion almost for 50 years and now they reconsidered. One other thing I want to say, which is interesting and a little bit ironic, is that in the past, many of the anti-choice organizations, politicians, you know, have really mentioned that they opposed abortion because it's an imperialist project of the US and that they want to impose, you know, reproductive rights and feminism in Latin America. And this goes against the, you know, traditions and values of Latin America that are rooted in Christianism and the Catholic Church. Obviously, they forgot the irony that Christianism and Catholic Church also was imposed from outside in Latin America. But this has been a strong, you know, like narrative that you hear, especially among some, you know, left-wing politicians or parties that they, you know, 
frame a lot of the policies of the U.S. as imperialist, and then they add this issue of abortion. So now it's I'm wondering, you know, how they're gonna be working through this when they say that the U.S. actually will be leading the anti-choice campaign and and movement. You know, how they're gonna like adapt their arguments? Uh, will they be welcoming imperialism in this sense? Cora Fernandez-Anderson is an assistant professor of politics at Mount Holyoke College and the author of Fighting for Abortion Rights in Latin America, Social Movements, State Allies, and Institutions. Cora Fernandez-Anderson, thanks so much for taking the time. According to the Guttmacher Institute, if Roe is overturned, as many as 26 states are certain or likely to ban abortion, meaning anyone who needs one will have to travel across state lines. In places like New York, where abortion rights are already codified in the state law, legislators are concerned whether clinics will be able to handle the influx of out-of-state patients. One day after State Attorney General Tish James called for a law to provide $50 million to New York abortion clinics to serve out-of-state patients, Governor Kathy Hochul said she would immediately free up $35 million for the clinics. Capital correspondent Karen DeWitt reports. The governor says the funds will subsidize travel, lodging, and other expenses associated with the procedure to be used for people who live in states where abortion would be banned if the Supreme Court does strike down Roe. I'm directing the Department of Health to create New New York's first fund ever to support abortion providers $25 million will expand capacity and access for patients seeking abortion care, largest fund of its kind in our nation. Hochul spoke via Zoom after testing positive for COVID-19 earlier this week, although she is asymptomatic. The governor says $10 million will also be available to increase security protections for clinics. The funding comes from the health department's emergency fund. It's controlled by the state's health commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett. The money would be ready for distribution as soon as the court acts, Hochul says being proactive. I said I'm better at playing offense than defense in anything I do. So we're preparing for this. It's going to take a little bit of time for the criteria to get out there, the information for the application to come in online. So so we're anticipating to have this go live as soon as that Supreme Court decision comes down. The governor was joined virtually by leaders of Planned Parenthoods across the state and lawmakers, including Senate Finance Committee Chair Liz Krueger. Krueger also supports the law introduced Monday by Attorney General James that would provide $50 million in funding. Krueger predicts that even more money will be needed. And I'm sorry, Governor, it's probably a down payment on other monies we're going to need to help to come up with to make sure that the people coming across state lines who will disproportionately be low-income, young, and young women of color are able to come here and get the services they need. While the state Democratic leaders support the funding, some Republicans do not. GOP Chair Nick Langworthy, in a statement called Hochul's and the other Democrats' announcement, manufactured hysteria designed to distract from the absolute dumpster fire they've created in New York. Langworthy says the governor and other New York Democrats should be focusing instead on the rising crime rate and high cost of living. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You've been listening to 51%. 
51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Nancy Gertner, Cora Fernandez-Anderson, Pat Bradley, and Karen DeWitt for contributing to this week's episode. For this week's full interviews and segments, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Next week, we'll get back to our Women in Business series. But until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. The night air down the hallway. I had to learn how to look away. I lost my cool. No electricity. Hot rain on the concrete. Sweet. Day.